Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, great to have all our listeners tuning in, and I hope that everyone's having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at this same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we bring you a variety of great interviews, all kinds of topics, whether it's uh, a guest talking about the USCCB's migration program to more theoretical topics like the one we're going to dive in today, which is about the parallels between Christians and pagans in classical times and in our time. And we've got a great guest for you today. We're speaking with Stephen Smith. He is professor of law and director on the program of uh, religion and theology and the Institute on Religion and Philosophy at the University of San Diego. He has written a very, very interesting book, Christians and Pagans in the City. Uh, it's published by Erdman's Press. And drawing fascinating parallels to conflicts between Christianity and paganism in classical antiquity, ancient Roman times, and the times we live in today, and showing how those uh, culture wars that we're living in today have interesting parallels in classical antiquity. Professor Smith, welcome to The Bridge Builder. It's great to have you on. Really nice to be on the program today. Thanks. What compelled you to take up the topic of paganism and contrast paganism from ancient times till now? Yeah, that's a good question, because I'm a law professor, I'm not a historian, and not a classicist or anything. Really, this happened several years ago, I think. I was noticing, as a lot of people do, that in the culture wars that we're involved in, though they're often described as a conflict between like religious and secular elements, they really seem to be kind of religious on both sides. You know, on both sides you see the kind of religious zeal and uh, good versus evil type of thinking and uh, desire to uh, sort of anathematize opponents and so forth. And I happened to be reading a book by T.S. Eliot, which he had argued back in 1939 that Western societies would be sort of shaped by a conflict between Christianity and what he called modern paganism. So I put those two things together, and that kind of got me off on this project. What is paganism? How would you, I mean, I think the people who you're describing today, I think the analogy is exactly right for reasons we can go into in our discussion, but what compelled you to use the term pagan. I, I don't think people who are uh, have the religious zeal that are involved in politics and are part of this culture war phenomenon you describe would they describe themselves as pagans. So what is what is a how does that manifest itself? Because people think of paganism in terms of stories about Zeus and Apollo and Diana and so forth, and uh, or they think of it in terms of like sacrificing a bull to Zeus or uh, and so forth, and they think we we don't really. Uh, we don't have much of that today. Actually, there's a, sort of a growing amount of even explicit paganism in that sense. But that is still, I think, sort of marginal to you know central politics and the kind of world I live in. So that was one of the main challenges. I ended up saying, and I'm hardly alone in this, it turns out, defining paganism as a kind of attitude toward the sacred or a view of the sacred. You think that if you define religion, uh, which is defined in lots of ways and is a slippery subject, but if you define it in terms of a commitment to some sort of sacred reality of the holy, and then you ask the question, where is the holy? In um, 
late antiquity and well into the ancient world, uh, there were a lot of beliefs in gods and goddesses, and they were very much within this world. And there are a number of scholars who have indicated that Judaism, and especially Christianity, were a radical departure from this by worshiping a transcendent god, uh, a god who, to be sure, is also imminent. Uh, I mean, in the incarnation of Jesus and so forth, the god is within this world. But ultimately, God transcends the world, created the world. So the contrast is between belief in a transcendent god and a merely imminent god, with paganism being the sort of imminent, uh, imminent position. And that's the way I define it. And honestly, that's the way some of the uh, ancient pagans defined it as well, pretty much, uh, as well as... Um, as well as some modern thinkers, some of whom even claim the label of pagan. So I think that's a, a pretty uh, plausible definition of paganism. I try not to editorialize in these conversations and let the guest speak for him or herself, but I was so compelled by the topic of your book and the, what you're articulating in there, and I think it's absolutely right. For those of us who work concretely in the political arena and see the di- the religious devotion of Uh, various actors, that liberalism today has its own liturgies. There are dogmas, the zeal with which certain causes engender devotion, the memo that seemed to have gone out one morning that everyone now at the beginning of every meeting announces their personal pronouns as though they're Uh making the sign of the cross when they enter church. Uh I mean, it's really quite stunning, and I think you've, you've hit on something, and I don't think paganism is the wrong term for it in the sense of uh, it immanentizes the eschaton, as Eric Vogelin said, right? right. Uh, that, or as Donaso Cortez wrote about, that the modern, modern democratic trends or modern, uh, the modern mindset is pantheistic, essentially. And he was writing 200 years ago, but I think that seems just so clear today, and you've described it very well. Yeah, and one of the interesting points there, I think, is that, again, the contrast that's so typical between uh, religion and secularism doesn't quite capture this because secularism for most people is connoted kind of a positivistic attitude toward knowledge and the world, which there really isn't anything sacred. And uh, there are some people probably who hold that view, but in fact, I think there are very few. Most people are still devoted to something that they regard as sacred uh, and they uh, with a kind of a religious, quasi-religious commitment to it. So I think this is actually more sort of uh, illuminating about the conditions that we're in than the religion-secular distinction is. Well, it speaks to the reality, and it's been a hard one to catch up to uh, in a church that's focused on the public discourse, finding common ground for the common good, a natural law frame of reference where there's these sets of truths that are accessible by reason outside of a particular faith perspective, and that's that common ground on which we're supposed to dialogue, but the reality is, it seems— and you're describing it well, is that all political conflict is ultimately theological. Does that, mm-hmm. does that make sense, or how would you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I can't quote it word for word, but there's a nice, uh, there's a nice quote from, uh, from Chesterton who said something like, what we see today is a conflict of faiths masquerading as policies. And then he, um, he says, we've contrived to invent a new kind of hypocrite. He says, the old hypocrite was someone who pretended to be religious, though his goals were really worldly. Just the new hypocrite is someone who's really religious, though he pretends that his cult uh, are worldly. And I think that's sort of true, you know, that there really is a, a conflict of faith going on, even in debates that, that get cast in terms of just uh, differences about public policy. 
We're speaking with Professor Stephen Smith at the University of San Diego School of Law. He is the author of The Very Fine Pagans and Christians in the City, available from Erdman's Press. Professor Smith, let's dig into this uh, parallel between historic periods that you lay out so well, uh, between the reprisals of Christians in ancient uh, Rome and the Greco-Roman world and what the culture wars dynamic is today. How do you see those par- these parallels in the different different historic periods how are christians facing similar things today than uh as they were in roman times well i i think that um the, the way i try to diagnose this in the book is that there was in the ancient world a conflict between christianity and paganism um sometimes it was pretty active and violent sometimes it was uh, more subdued but it sort of played itself out over the early centuries and by about the fourth century into the 5th century, it's probably fair to say that Christianity had sort of won in that struggle, at least as an official matter. But my argument is that uh, paganism was hardly eliminated or defeated. It sort of continued throughout Western history in various forms, and that what we're seeing now, I suggest, is a kind of pagan counter-revolution that's attempting to undo the Christian revolution of the 4th and 5th centuries. And I think that this is one way of understanding a variety of things that are going on today. Um, I talk about constitutional law developments because that's an area that I teach and write about and so forth. But so, so I think that, for example, in conflicts about religious freedom today that are obviously quite active now, or in conflicts that have led to changes in the law about sexuality and marriage, um, I think you can see a lot of this as as this kind of pagan counter-revolution attempting to overthrow the the sort of Christian ideal that's prevailed through much of the Western history. Perhaps turning the analogy on its head a bit, uh, Christians actually were called pagans by the Romans because they wouldn't worship the gods and participate in the same way in public life. And, And though we might call ourselves Christians and the other side pagans, one might say, today Christians are being treated more and more like the Romans did to whom they called the pagans. So is there really this kind of battle of which gods we're going to worship and then ostracizing the other party? Is that a dynamic that's similar in both epics? I think it is. I have a chapter in the book that talks about the sort of persecutions in the ancient world, and my suggestion is that although it seemed to both the pagans and to the Christians that peaceful coexistence should have been possible, it really wasn't. Uh, Christians like Tertullian, you know, would write um, saying, you know, why are you persecuting us? We pray for the emperor, we do our civic duties, we associate with you in almost all ways, and just because we believe in um, a different god, we believe basically you um, wreak violence, and he describes it somewhat graphically, you know, uh, against us, and what's the point of that? But I argue that that was a little bit of a misunderstanding on his part, because there really were ways in which uh, the Roman pagans were correct to see Christianity as subversive of the kind of faith that sustained the empire. And that, you know, that's a sort of a bleak view of things, and I don't want to say that peaceful coexistence is never possible, but there are some sort of incompatibilities, I think, that make it somewhat difficult. So today, again, uh, people argue about things... um, some of which, just on a policy level, don't always seem all that important. Things like, you know, whether you can put up a cross or 
for example, whether the government has to put its support behind contraceptives in a particular way and force employers to supply. And you might think there are other ways of doing that. and not. But I think these things are symbolic of what people to understand to be somewhat incompatible worldviews and un- incompatible views of, uh, of the kind of polity that we live in. And today, in many ways, Christians are, are in a situation where, insofar as the more imminent mindset has become more dominant, are kind of again in the position, in, in some contexts, of being marginalized, suffering the consequences of their faith. I think you see this in areas like uh, the current, for example, um, lawsuits involving Christian bakers or florists who think they can't do same-sex marriage, and there are plenty of other bakers or florists available, everyone knows that. But somehow, nonetheless, they're seen as threatening, I think, and incompatible. That's one area, I think, where this conflict shows up. Do you think it boils down to the, the conflict between Christianity and paganism, that paganism deifies the state and asserts that Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not, and the Church asserts that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Is that ultimately the the, the focus of the conflict that I'm thinking here of whenever paganism seems to be resurgent? They're always going after the nuns, right? So right. like uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor today, you go back to the French Revolution, and for some reason they're executing Carmelite sisters as though, you know, as to, to quote Tertullian again and go back to your point about him, what, poss- right. what harm could these ladies be doing to the public order, right? But is it just mm-hmm. that they're a sign of contradiction and asserting that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not? Is that ultimately the, the focus of that conflict, do you think? Well, yes, uh, although I might, um, uh, I might put it differently in one respect. I think sacralizing the state is one form that paganism can take. Um, and I also think that, uh, well, progressives, whether, whether you think of them as pagans or not, uh, these days tend to, tend to want to say that the state has got to be the ultimate sovereign and that it can't recognize some other sovereign. So uh, in areas of religious freedom, which is something I write quite a lot about, I think there are uh, certainly plenty of progressive-type thinkers who are not uh, necessarily averse to exempting uh, conscientious objectors from certain kinds of laws, like military conscription laws and so forth. And the conscientious objection could be extended to religious objectors insofar as they can cast their objection in terms of conscience. But what they tend to resist is the idea that this should be done out of deference to some sort of other sovereign, you know, treating God as sovereign, which was exactly the rationale for commitments to religious freedom that people like Jefferson and uh, Madison had articulated. And that was, of course, the culmination in some sense of a long history going back to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and so forth. But that's the that's the sort of position that progressives today tend to be. Um, unwilling to accept. You know, the state may, in its goodness, decide to exempt you, in other words, but not because it has any sort of deference to a god that would be above it. Uh, that, that's a sort of crucial difference, I think. The, the one thing I might put differently, though, is that I think paganism can uh, anciently had lots of gods. You can have lots of gods today. So the state is sometimes treated as sacralized, I think, but that's not the only form, or even the most common form, I think, of paganism. I think, for example, deifying the individual, the individual identity and personality, 
something Ross Douthat talks about is like the God within movement is, if anything, even more influential and pervasive. Hmm. Well put, well put. What's re- what's fueling this counter-revolution against the Christian ethos of civilization as you described it today? Well, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, my argument is that paganism never really was defeated. Um, in fact, in a certain sense, it's almost like our natural condition, you know, the natural human condition, insofar as we... Uh, insofar as we live within this world, and we know of any other world mostly by inference or revelation, but this is the world we know directly. If we have a, uh, an instinct for the sacred, our natural condition is kind of, our tendency is to locate the sacred within this within this world, and um, that's something I think actually Christian preachers and writers have, <clears throat> have known and tried to resist all through the centuries. So paganism's always been there, What's happened, I think, is the sort of the Christian canopy that existed over what was, to some extent, always a kind of pagan world, has gotten very tattered and thin of late. And so it's not surprising that there might be an attempt to just throw it off altogether. The, the Enlightenment, in some ways, tried to do that. Thinkers like Voltaire and and David Hume and that's happening again, I think, understandably, because, the Christ, again, the Christianity, the Christian regulatory ideal has been weakened in various ways for you know reasons that could be discussed. So I think that's what, that's what you see today is an attempt to kind of throw that off. Uh, that, uh, that's the basis, I think, for the, what I'm calling the counter-revolution. Picking up on that point, the, your book cuts against the conventional wisdom in the sense that the, the more humane, tolerant, uh, society is built by casting aside comprehensive viewpoints and grand narratives and building a pluralistic, uh, tolerant order, and that's the pathway to peace and prosperity. But uh, building up off that uh, point of C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis believed that the Christianity was the, the best hope for something even tolerable, and paganism, in fact, was uh, the path to barbarism. Yeah, uh, Elliot, I think, thought that as well. And I do think there's a more general point here that toleration, I think, has to come from some sort of basic belief that gives, you know, a basis or a rationale for toleration. So in Christianity, you know, just to put the sort of, uh, make the obvious and fairly simple point, the idea that the only kind of faith that has any saving value is a voluntary, sincere faith has been a reason for uh, that. I mean, obviously, Christians have not always acted on this rationale, but it's been a rationale for um, religious freedom. You know, there's uh, Locke and Madison and others, and and Tertullian was writing about this, you know, way back in the second and third centuries. And so what's that? You know, there's no point in coercing people in matters of religion, and so that's a basis for toleration. If you take away that foundation, you know, that there's... um, there's less reason for toleration. So, um, uh, and I recall that um, in some discussion years ago, uh, a statement by uh, Richard John Newhouse saying, you know, if toleration and any kind of religious toleration is to going to arise in Muslim uh, cultures, it's going to have to find have a foundation in Muslim thought. Same is true for Christianity. I think just getting rid of belief doesn't lead, I think, to toleration. Yeah, you need a strong conception of the dignity of the human person as the rationale for the. Uh, pluralistic liberal regime, it seems. Mm -hmm. One final question, Professor Smith. How does the Church confront this new paganism effectively? Is it through dialogue, or is it more confrontational? Is it prophetic in the sense of the uh, St. Paul and the um, 
going through the Roman world and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is not? Or what's what's the path forward for the church in trying to restore a measure of uh, humanity and civilization to an emerging pagan context? Yeah, well, that's a big question. Fortunately, I'm not in a position where I have to be the one to supply <laughs> an answer to that question. Um, I mean, in all sorts of ways, but I guess I would say the one thought I would have on that is that um, I actually think, although I don't discuss this in the book so much, that it's very easy for Christian Christianity to itself sort of dissolve into a kind of immanentism that's a sort of paganism. Um I think debates both in Catholic and Protestant circles in the 19th century and in the early 20th century between what were often thought of as liberals and modernists against, you know, more um, fundamentalists on the Protestant side, as they were sometimes called, them, reflected this because the uh, the goal of at least some of the modernists and liberals were, I, uh, I think the goal was to really push the imminent side of Christianity. And, and the trick is, I think, that that's a very real part of Christianity, but I think if it gets overemphasized to, at the expense of the transcendent commitment, Christianity itself can become a kind of a wishy-washy uh, quasi-paganism. So I guess I think one thing that the Church has to do, uh, and I'm speaking of the Church generally, um, you know, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, um, Mormons, and so on, is sort of take stock of what we really believe, you know, what, and the extent of our commitments, including our commitments to a transcendent deity, and not lose hold of those, even, because otherwise I think we ourselves and our own members are in danger of lapsing into a kind of, a kind of paganism. Uh, so, so that in itself is one challenge, I think. Well, that's a very Chestertonian theme of the Church navigating those tensions in the world, making everything a both-and instead of an either-or, right? Mm-hmm. The transcendent and the imminent, and working to rebuild and repair the city while at the same time keeping our eyes on heaven. Uh, yeah. That's a that's a fantastic place to end our conversation. Professor Smith, uh, you've written a very fine book, Pagans and Christians in the City, available from Erdman's. Thank you for your work and for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thanks for having me. God bless. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got for today's mailbag segment? Yeah, so caucuses are coming up on February 25th, and some of our listeners who've never attended a caucus before, they're asking simply, how does a caucus work? What should I expect when I show up for a caucus? Well, caucuses are very important, and they are the first place in which we pick our political candidates and the political parties develop their party platform. So we often complain about the choices we're given in elections. We complain about the party platforms that we feel politically homeless. Well, now is your opportunity to make a difference and become a part of a political party caucus. Now, they're political parties, not just the Republicans and the Democrats, but other political parties caucus too. And you can go to those and uh, nominate candidates for office. You can introduce resolutions that will work their way through the 
process and shape the party platforms. Caucuses are gatherings of a political party. They're run by volunteers, commonly using Robert's Rules of Order and adopting any other rules needed for the process to have an orderly gathering and meeting. It is typical that you'll be given a chance uh, to donate, of course, to the party cause uh, once, if not more. But again, this is a voluntary exercise. Uh, what to do? First of all, you can always go to our website, mncatholic.org slash caucus. There you will find a link to find your caucusing location. Where do I go? The second step is the one of the most important steps in all of political life, and that's just showing up. Honestly, this is the most important thing. Even if you've never been to a caucus before, it's an engaging and interesting experience. And don't be afraid about not knowing what to do. You'll get the hang of it. And even if you're there for an educational experience, it can be particularly informative. Even if you don't agree up and down with what you conceive a party platform to be, it's good to participate in the process. And again, be leaven in that context. Bring a new perspective uh, into that conversation, especially on controversial questions where it seems that the parties have taken a rigid approach. It's good to bring a Catholic voice and to have a say in shaping the parties instead of the parties shaping us. Visit with your neighbors when you go before and after you sign in at around 6.30 p.m. Uh, on, the, on that caucus day, and that's February 25th, I should clarify. The caucus convenes promptly at 7, and as things begin, don't be shy about asking questions. There will be somebody who convenes the meeting in your precinct, and the first order of business is to elect somebody to run the caucus. It may or not may not be the convener. Then there will usually be some precinct organizing done, such as electing a precinct chair uh, who will be active for the coming two-year cycle. This is also the time and place to submit a resolution to influence your party's platform. And at the Minnesota Catholic Conference on our caucus webpage, we give you some draft resolutions that you can bring and introduce into the party platform. And those will get voted on. And then as the the movement goes from precinct to district to the state convention, uh, you will have uh, hopefully those will get enacted into the party platform. But of course, there's strength in numbers. So encourage your friends to go and vote for your resolutions as well. Delegates are elected to go through that process. The number varies, but they will represent your precinct at the conventions that follow from the Senate district level right up to the national party conventions. There are often straw polls or preference ballots for candidates, particularly in a presidential cycle. Note, however, we do have uh, a presidential primary this year instead of uh, ballots being taken during the caucus process, and that's going to happen a couple weeks after the caucus. Note that if you're in a hurry, you may typically vote early in these straw polls and then leave, depending on the rules. Finally, the caucus will adjourn. If you've stayed to the end, it's a formal step, but you can always leave whenever you need to because the entire process is voluntary. So there's caucusing in a nutshell. Again, more information, go to our webpage, mncatholic.org slash caucus. Great. Thank you, Jason. And we also want to leave our listeners with some other practical ways to start bringing their faith into the public arena. Well, we always emphasize that faith in public life, faithful citizenship goes far beyond the voting booth. And people oftentimes will limit their faithful citizenship to the voting booth. But it really is what we're doing at the other 364 days of the year. One interesting thing about Minnesota, though, is that the state gives people plenty of time to vote through absentee balloting. And absentee balloting in the presidential primary is already underway. The presidential primary is set for March 3rd. The two major parties participating in the presidential nomination primary 
are the Democratic Farmer Labor Party and the Republican Party. Registered voters are able to vote at their polling place, uh, such as a public library, for example, all the way up from now until March 3rd for the in the presidential primaries. Now, note that to vote in a presidential primary of a particular party, you must request the ballot of the party of your choice. If a voter refuses to select a party, they will not be able to vote in the presidential primary. A voter's choice of party ballot will be recorded in a list of who voted in a presidential primary, and the political party each voter selected will be provided to the chair of each major political party. But how a voter voted on the ballot will, in fact, be secret. This has generated a lot of controversy, as people don't want others to know who they vote for. A secret ballot is kind of a um, a important value in democratic life, but at the same time, these are party primaries, and so there is one perspective that says if you're voting in a primary party, you should, or a party primary, you should be affiliated with that party. So there's an interesting tension there between uh, the right of association of a political party to the, uh, the from the standpoint of we only get two choices uh, by and large. We get, there's many, of course, parties on the ballot, but generally speaking, we have a limited set of choices in terms of who's ultimately going to get elected. But there you have it. We'll probably go through this cycle, seeing how that works, and then the legislature at a future date may decide to make a change depending on the hue and cry of the public. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder. Remember, you can catch us here at this time each week. If you miss an episode, go to our website, mncatholic.org podcast, and find back episodes or find us on your favorite podcast app such as iTunes. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and for our producer, Kit Cross, we hope you have a very blessed day. Thanks for listening. Take care.